0: Okay, good morning, everyone. It's a, uh Arab Pasha's Va'ikra. We won't speak much about Va'ikra, but we're going to talk about uh, some Hagada insights, and I'm always happy to hear yours. I want to thank the series sponsor. We threw in uh, Pesach Haggadah boot camp as part of the sponsorship this year. Lana Mark Rothenberg, Rachel Fein, in memory of Ezreal Ben Yaakov Fein, in their upcoming Simcha. Yafanil Bromberg, in memory of Leah Minsher Huda, Chaya Mark Goldsmith, in memory of Rivka Baal Bassabra Makoyin. Rachel and Rabbi White in memory of Yoshua and Rabbi White, it's great having you here. And uh, after I give shiurim, Rabbi White always has something better to add. So anytime you want to knock me out, uh, feel free. So it's a great skill to have you. Okay, it's always hard to know where to start, and I have a whole bunch of things, but uh, hopefully pretty structured. And uh, something struck me, you know, a lot of questions that I get about uh, Pesach, besides Kashra's questions, and you kind of could tell every year how many people are going away, who's staying home. I don't judge anybody. It's great. I had a question this week, which was amazing. Somebody was spending the first days in Cancun and uh, the last days in some other island they never heard of. And they actually had some very interesting Shilas is what happens about kashering in the middle. You know, you're not supposed to kosher during Pesach, but let's say you come to a place for the last day. So these are very interesting questions that Moshe Feinstein wasn't even asked. But Baruch Hashem, we get these questions. And questions are a great idea. And that's what I want to start with. Uh, there's a Haggadah that came out. I just started looking at it uh, this year, but I usually uh, look at these things a couple years uh, later. There's uh, a Rosh Hashiva in the five towns. It's very profound. Um, his name is Rabbi Yaakov Bender. I think the name of his yeshiva is Darachet Torah. So he has a Haggadah. So one of the reasons why I was very interested in looking at it, he's an educator. So to look at a Haggadah written by an educator, I think is, uh, I hope it was going to be good. And by the way, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't be talking about it. And he really has great educational points that I think are uh, of value the entire year. And in fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, the Seder is not meant to be the aberration. It's really the model of how we're supposed to educate the whole year, you know, with the visuals, with the questions and the answers, obviously we would, not with demurrer, but it's, uh, we can learn a lot from it. So I want to point out one thing uh, from our bender, but before I get there, I want to start with something from the Baba Varebi, and you'll see how this first piece all comes together. You know, at the very out, towards the outset of the Haggadah, of the Seder, we break the matzah, the family minog that we have is that we break the matzah on one of the guest's heads. Okay, that's the minhug. With soft matzah, it works very well if you have a hard piece of matzah, the oat matzah. I'm telling you, if someone's gluten-free, it's all over the head. Why do you break your head? And it really should be on the person who is leading the Seder. And I want to explain a little bit of history. If you look in ancient, uh, in the good old days of the Rishonim, especially before the printing press, not everybody said the Haggadah. It was generally one person who was the mockery who was uh, saying the Haggadah, kind of like Hazar Sashatz, right? One person was uh, saying it, people were listening, maybe they said amen, obviously to the bracha, so they responded to some of the questions. Why do you think it was like that? So one is just from a purely historical point, you have to look at the history of the printing of the Haggadah, and there's a lot of history. I mean, we've kind of made up for it over the last uh, few years by the amount of Haggadahs that are out there. But you, you could imagine, the Haggadah was not necessarily cheap, even if they were available. And before the printing press, they weren't as available. There's also another concept of Birovam Hadrus Melech, that you could bring the whole tzibor, which means your whole table, your whole family together, by having one person as the leader. It's a question in general. Let's say when it comes to Kiddush on a Friday night, I don't want to get into a of discussion. Do you have one person that says the Kiddush? There's a value of that. Or does every single person uh, say the kiddish So this, these are part of the questions. So what happens very often is the person, even today, if there's somebody who's in charge, they may get a little bit worked up. They have their vision of what the Seder should be. You see, if it was up to me personally, what would I do? I mean, if I didn't have kids, I didn't have a wife and any family, I'd sit in the corner and I'd read like a and have a good time. But it's not my seder, right? It's the seder of the whole family. So the of v'rabbi said, I don't know which baba v'rabbi, which street, and uh, which of v'rabbi, which generation, but I started quoting the a baba of Haggadah. He says the reason why we break the matzah in the beginning is because it's really shviras ha guf or shviras ha We're breaking ourselves. We're saying at the very outset we're going to be humble, and everybody should try to be humble at the seder. You're not going to get everything that you want. I get a lot of questions about tension at uh, Family sedarim, believe it or not. And it's not just because people don't like each other. I mean, that's obvious. But it's also because people have different visions. And you may have people with different niskals, different backgrounds, trying to get different things out of it. I've tried to tell people in the past, but it's never going to work, unless you really like this idea, that you don't have to have the longest uh, seder. Magid is usually where the fights break out, because everybody's hungry. Even the guy who's talking on and on, he really wants to eat. He just feels that he has to talk, and maybe that's what, how he's going to earn his Olam Haba. The, uh, they came out a couple of years ago. I didn't get to, Rukhaim, I didn't get to Rabbi Bendu yet. Rabbi Kenievsky Haggadah, and I thought this would really change the world. You know how long his Magid was? 30 minutes, right? Magid was 30 minutes. You like that? 30 minutes. They, they obviously spoke divrei Torah, and it wasn't just because they wanted to get to the Afi Komen at the end. Especially today, in our generation, people don't have as much patience. I can tell you that it's about shul time. It's about uh, many different areas of life. Shows, I think, are much shorter than they used to be, if they even have those anymore. So everybody should try to relax and chill out. But what this brings me back to is a very interesting insight that I've heard based on questions. In the good old days, when you had a person who was reading it, so there were advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, from a participatory perspective, there's a disadvantage. I'm sure there were people even back then who were daydreaming and just dreaming about the uh, chicken and the soup while this guy is uh, reading the Haggadah. So that's a disadvantage. And it's beautiful that everybody has their own Haggadah or many Haggadahs. But sometimes people get embarrassed at the Seder if they're called upon to read. Some families have a tradition. They go around the table and everybody reads the Haggadah. I'm not telling you what to do, but the person who's in charge has to remember that Baba Varebi of maybe breaking yourself and thinking about other people. Maybe not everybody knows how to read Hebrew. Even if the person's gone to yeshiva for 12 years, you know, certain people have uh, learning disabilities or they weren't really listening or whatever the issue is, and uh, don't call on someone to say a Torah if they're not prepared especially if it's your future son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Right? You just have to be sensitive to the busha aspect. And uh, these are ways to keep the Seder as peaceful as possible. So Rabbi Bender really makes uh, one major point. I'm going to change it a little bit for my purposes, but um, it's based on something that he said. I saw a very similar idea many years ago in a Haggadah called Tegione Halacha of Rabbi Mirsky. It's a beautiful Haggadah. I highly recommend it. It's pretty easy Hebrew. Maybe they translated it one time. You know, there are a lot of questions at the Seder. When it comes to the Seder, and this is just the trick I tell everybody, there's two answers to almost every question. If you don't know the answer, you just say this and you'll get something. In our family, we have a Minug, I think it came from my wife's side of the family, that anybody who asks a question gets a chocolate, uh, gets a little piece of chocolate, even before Kiddush. Okay, I make go, it's less than a shear, we measure it, etc. no problem and at our there, i realized this while i was reading rabbi bender not to toot my own horn we we're really more into questions than answers you could ask the silliest question and my kids do even though they're in their twenties. some of them they ask the most ridiculous questions great question great question now some of those questions if they were asked in a classroom the teacher would probably throw them out of the classroom or say you only get one question a day you know i know someone in my family my father after he graduated uh from his profession, he went into retirement, he went back to school. He has a PhD, he was very knowledgeable, but he always liked to learn. And he would sit in college classes and the teacher said to him, uh, Dr. Baum, one question a class, right? Because, you, know, you know, he would ask uh, too many questions, but there's never too many questions. So Rabbi Bender said something really incredible. And what Rabbi Mursky said earlier, questions is a sign of being free. If you're not free, you know, when you're in prison, you don't get to ask too many questions, right? that's, That's not what happens. So the answer to almost every question at the Pesach Seder is, so the kids should ask, and that's accurate. The other answer is because it's a sign of freedom. You'll see how those two questions answer almost everything at the Seder. But what Rabbi Bender says, and I'm using my own formulation, there's a difference between a question and a complaint. Here's the takeaway. If you look at a complaint as a question, Let's say you're the person, the parent, the teacher, even the child. You take something that sounds like a complaint and you turn it into a question, then it changes the world. If you're the person who complains a lot, and instead of complaining, you actually ask, because maybe there's actually an answer, because you don't know it all when you complain. I'm not talking to my congregants, but to everyone. You turn into a question, then everything is beautiful. And that's really the nature of the Seder. That's a sign of freedom. That's not just the four questions. There's so many questions. Now, he has a proof. His proof to it, I thought, was just incredible. And the beauty is when you could go outside of the Seder. At the end of the Torah, in Pashas Kisava, which finds its way into the Haggadah, there's Rashi. This Rashi is actually based on a pasuk later on, at the end of the Torah, Moshe takes one Sefer Torah and he tells the B'nai Leviim, he tells the Leviim to put it next to uh, the Aron. Now that's one Torah. All the other tribes were looking at this and they said, this doesn't seem to be very fair. Fair. Now at the times of Korah, this would have been a complaint. You know, what's with the special people? But over here. Moshe Abenu looked at it not as a complaint. He himself, if you could say matured, he looked at it as a question when the other tribe said, why can't we have a Sefer Torah for ourselves? Rashi brings this down and Rashi doesn't even give a source. He says, shamati, I heard it was so important for Rashi that we don't even have a source for this, a medrash for this, but Rashi said, I want to put this in. Shamati what did I hear? Like it's going to say later on in Pashas Vayelach. And Moshe Rabbeinus heard the Jews complaining, and he said, you know what? I'm so excited. Because to him, it wasn't a complaint anymore. It was a question. Why can't we have access to the Torah as well? And Moshe was never happier before. So this is a perfect example. And it's what we're trying to accomplish, obviously, at the Seder. And you don't want to say, "Oh, this guy is the Russia." Smack him in the face. You're excited that the Russia's at the table. And if we could tell people and say we don't really have Russia, and we just have people that are asking questions, it's a life changer. So I think it was worth coming just for this. But I'm going to give you a lot more. Now, if I ever wrote a, a haggadah, which I'm not going to, maybe we'll see what happens. But I would probably call it the B'nai Brak haggadah. Now, B'nai Brak's in the news, not for such good reasons. If you look at the news last night. B'nai Brak that we have today is not the same B'nai Brak. It's not the same location, but it's pretty close. You know, maybe it's Yafo it's pretty close. And B'nai Brak, you know, a lot of American Jews never take a trip to B'nai Brak. It's worth visiting. There are a lot of great people there. There's amazing bakeries, right, farm stores, Coca-Cola company if you want to see. Coca-Cola in Israel is a little bit different than America. We'll talk about it later. And it's a great place to at least take one trip. You'll be in a lot of traffic, so give yourself a few hours. There's so many divrei Torah that I've given over the years. Uh, my kids already—they start yawning. They start saying, "Yeah, we heard that." Does anybody else have that at the seder? You said that already last year. <laughs> Those are the best divrei Torah. My rebbe, my first rebbe when I came to YU before I went to Rappaport's shul, was Reb Brown or Every single year, he gave a pesach shir, and he always gave, and he, he had tremendous chedushim. He always started and ended with the same thing. Because he said, this is exactly what Rabbi Soloveitchik did. It's what Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik did. There's an idea. Maybe I'll do it the first night of Pesach. (laughs) So if you say the same thing, the kids, at the end of the day, that's what they're going to end up saying at their tables. It means it's really uh, special to them. You said it already. So there's so many divret Torah on B'nai Brak. Now, usually the question comes like this. The question is, we know Rabbi Akiva lived in B'nai Brak. We know that the other four of the Fab Five, the March Madness, the other four, Great Tannoyim, did not live in B'nai Brock. One lived in Lud, one lived in Picaya. They, they lived all over the place. So what are they all hanging out at the Pesach program in B'nai Brock? Right, B'nai Brak, I don't think today has beautiful uh, hotels and Pesach programs back then. So there are many different answers. If you get a chance, I'll give you my favorite answer that I probably said in the show 20 times already. But I saw this year, a new answer. Now, this, this Rav, Rav Druk, who I've quoted many times in this year, Yisrael Mayor Druk, the son of Mordechai Druk, he came out a few years ago, at least the Arts Girl printed his uh, insights on Rosh Hashanah Maksar, which people here have found very useful, Yom Kippur. And this year, maybe it's older, I saw his insights on the Haggadah. Very fascinating individual. It's all written in Hebrew, but a, part of it was translated. He quotes over here from Rebel Yashev. So this is a two-for-one deal. You can quote in the name of Rav Druk and Rebel Yashev, and you get a double. Now he's not bothered by why they're all in B'nai Brak. That's not his question. But he says, what's the common denominator between these five? Now I'm not gonna list all five until I get up into his insights. And I'm more or less gonna rephrase what he says. Rebel Yashev said the following. You know, the Jewish people when they were in Mitzrayim and many Jews today. They feel low, right? Maybe they're going through a challenging time. I'm some of my insights. Maybe even at a Seder table, they feel insecure around some of the other people. You know, in a Jewish community, you see a lot of people on the outside, things look great. I'm not saying they're not great and they should be great, but I know the real story, right? Life's a lot more challenging and complex. Pesach should be a time that boosts us. So he says that's basically what's happening in the story. All five, of the Tanayim, and these are some of the greatest rabbis that we still rely on in Jewish history, all five of them had major challenges and they were able to deal with their challenges, maybe even overcome their challenges, however you define overcome. And you're going to be a little bit surprised. Rabbi Akiva is obvious. That's the one he mentions last. Rabbi Akiva, by the way, until he was 40, was a total amaaretz. Now, I remember hearing this as a kid and thinking, wow, that's really old. It must have been Rabbi Akiva with a long white beard. Once you hit 40 and 50, you realize, you know, it's pretty young, okay, 40 is pretty young. But the bottom line is, you have to understand, it wasn't just that he was an aretz, Rabbi Akiva. He was a very angry man. He hated rabbis, Rabbi Akiva. He was vicious. You know, he worked on his midos. So his life was not just developing the mind, but it was developing uh, his midos as well. So he himself is an inspiration. He, look at the handicap that he had, lack of education, and he was able to overcome it. So whatever you're going through, hopefully you can be inspired by Rabbi Akiva. The first one that he deals with is Rebbe Eliezer. This is Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. Now, if you know from the name Horkinus, Hyrcanus is not the typical Jewish name. This was a somewhat or very much assimilated family. And the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer tells us that at the age of 28, Rabbi Eliezer didn't even know the Shema, And his father mocked him because he said to his father, I want to learn Torah. And the father says, you? I could see Uncle Beryl down the block, but you, you're nothing. You're a businessman. You know, you're not going to be a Torah learning person. So he overcame that to be part of the Jewish community and the learned community. Then you get to Rabbi Yeshua, who's a very famous figure. The Gemara tells us in Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Druk mentions all these uh, sources, but he quotes straight from Rabbi Yashif. That's what's so great about his Haggadah. He gives you insights that he heard from others that aren't necessarily printed. Rabbi made Meir Druk, you know, he was the prime Talmud of Rechaim Knievsky. He actually had a heart attack when he heard that Rechaim Knievsky passed away. I'm not making, this is not just Gadol stories. So then we get to Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua was dirt poor. How do we know it was dirt poor? The Gemara says that the walls were black, which was a sign of poverty. Now, it's very hard to learn when you're not eating. It's very hard to learn when you have to go out and you have to make a parnasa, but he was able somehow to combine the two. The biggest chiddush that he has is Rabbi Tarfon, because Rabbi Tarfon doesn't seem to have any struggles. So he says, "You know what was the greatest struggle, Rabbi Tarfon? His money. He was wealthy. That's that could be a handicap. He was a wealthy landowner." And uh, he could have had all the excuses in the world not to dedicate his time to learning Torah. For some people, and this is really the main point of Rebbe Yashif, everybody has a handicap, everybody has a challenge. For one person, you're a rich guy, well that should be no challenge. You're a poor guy, what else do you have to do but learn? Everyone has a challenge. And then of course, within here, and that's how we get to the story, is we have Rebbe Ben-Azariah. Rebbe Ben-Azariah was the leader who everyone mocked because he's a little 18-year-old pitcher? And what's this guy going to do? Today it's very in, you know, you hire young general managers, young coaches. It's very popular. But in those days, you're talking about uh, the great Tanayim, especially if you know who Rebbe ben Azariah was replacing. And the point that Rebbe took from all these Tanayim, and Rebbe had great insights into uh, these types of things, is that whatever your background, whatever your current situation, You are supposed to not only be sitting at the Seder, but you should look to overcome and you have role models and hopefully everybody has this within their own families. The best thing at the Seder is not just to talk about people from uh, the Seder, you want to talk about people from the parents, the grandparents great-grandparents, cousins, you know, people that you've read about who could continue to inspire. And very likely, there's somebody sitting at their table who may not be the best reader of the Haggadah, may have not come with any divry Torah, but may have some insights that could be life changers. I want to end, I have so much more to say, but you know, the 810 guys give me two minutes extra. So I'll just leave you with one last thing. This I saw, uh, Haggadah, you know, Rabbi Michelle, Judah Michelle, who was here this year, and last year, so he has a rebbe who uh, came out with a haggadah. It's called the Haggadah of Rav uh, Avram Svikluger. I, I forgot the exact name of the haggadah. He's a Rosh Hashiva, a young uh, Hasidish man in Beit Shemesh. So he says another reason why they went to Rebbe Akiva. This is amazing. I never saw this one before. Rebbe Akiva was a ger. Rebbe Akiva was a convert. You know, converts are the greatest people in the Jewish community to be celebrated. You're not supposed to say to a ger, oh, you're a ger, you know, and I'm not. Chas shalom. that's the prohibition. But we should be inspired by gerim. You know, I tell the story all the time. Someone asked Chaim Kanievsky about, uh, Could I mar- should I marry a georist? He says, I don't understand the question. You know, obviously in the Shiduchim world, to say you're a georist today may not work. He said, what's wrong with that? It's amazing. Not only do you fulfill the mitzvah of loving your wife every day, you get a mitzvah of avas ager every day. Right, so what well, could be better? So they went to Bene to be with Rabbi Akiva because Rabbi Akiva was a Ger, and on Pesach night we we're all converting. Now you could take that first of all not literally, and you understand it's a night of transformation. But he took it literally at the very outset of the seder. You know, we don't say a bracha. Why don't we say a bracha? Because he wants to argue that at the outset of the seder, if we're really reenacting what happened, we're not. Qualified to say a bracha. We're on the Memtesh Sharetumah, the lowest level of Sharetumah. We're worshiping Avodah Zarah. As the night continues, we transform ourselves to be these big shots. We're able to say brachas, we're able to do mitzvot, we're able to sing the praise of Hashem. And uh, Meshachachma, he quotes, who says that the carbon pesach that was brought was actually the carbon <coughs> at that time for Geirim. So it's a night that we're all geirim. So who do you want to be inspired by on the night of, con- of conversion? You want to go to the ultimate convert of our time. And that's why they went to Rabbi Akiva. So hopefully Pesach should be peaceful, inspirational, and a great time to be born-again Jews. <laughs>